Lecture Notes, The Medieval Period, Aquinas. When we talked about Augustine, we talked about how much he was influenced by Plato and the Platonists. Remember, initially medieval Europe only had a few texts from the ancient world, some fragments from Plato. All of Aristotle's writing and notes were unknown in the European world, although they were wildly popular in the Middle East and in the Middle East philosophers were busy writing impressive commentaries on Aristotle. But then, in part as a result of the Reconquista and Crusades, Aristotle was finally rediscovered in Europe around the time of Aquinas. We regard Aristotle as some ancient, semi-boring, famous Greek philosopher, but try to take off that perspective for a second. The rediscovery of Aristotle was a big deal in medieval Europe. He was sort of like the hot new trend among medieval scholars, but he wasn't without controversy. Medieval Christians were accustomed to reconciling Plato and Christianity. Augustine had set an example of that. But Aristotle? He seemed like a threat to their faith, a strange and foreign new theory, and they weren't sure if he was compatible with Christianity. Maybe it's kind of an analogy with modern physicists studying the origins of the universe or Darwin publishing on evolution. On the one hand, these intellectual movements generated a lot of excitement and curiosity and got and still get a lot of attention. But they were also, and still are, highly controversial among religious circles and especially so among Christians. This is sort of what it was like for medieval Christians with respect to Aristotle. On the one hand, cutting edge scholarship, exciting, thought provoking. On the other hand, seemingly incompatible with their theological framework, a possible threat. Here enters Aquinas. Aquinas wrote a huge body of extremely systematically written work in which he tried to lay out detail by detail by detail an account of Christian theology and philosophy. But the account he gave was inspired by Aristotle, and it was an attempt to merge Aristotelian philosophy with Christian theology. Aquinas's work is known as the Summa, sort for, short for Summa Theologica, that's untranslated Latin, and it's a giant three-volume treatise. You can get a sense for its enormity by clicking around this online translation link in the Canvas lecture notes. Notice that there are four parts, prima pars, prima secunda, secunda secunda, and tertia. So first part, first of the second part, second of the second part, third part. Throughout the Summa, Aquinas refers to an authority simply known as the philosopher. That's a reference to Aristotle. Part A, Aquinas's philosophical method. Before we get into what specifically Aquinas thought, I want to say something about his way of doing philosophy, since it was deeply influential for medieval philosophy in general and is arguably a reflection of the development of the university. Towards the end of the medieval period, the early precursor of our modern university or college was beginning to emerge. Basically, Aquinas's entire summa is written according to the following format. First, a question is given. Then, Aquinas gives several objections to his own answer. Then he states, on the contrary, blah, 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 and then gives a different answer on, under the on the contrary. And it's normally a rebuttal of the objections above, and it normally draws on an authority in the tradition. Then he'll say, I respond that or I answer that, which gives his own answer. And it's normally slightly different than the on the contrary answer just given above. Then he'll go through and give a response to each objection. So here's an example. Aquinas asks, does happiness consist in wealth? And this is from Summa Prima Secunda, question two, article one. 
Then after asking the question, does happiness consist in wealth? He gives three objections to his own view. Roughly paraphrasing, they are one, all things obey money, Ecclesiastes 10.19. So money is that which we love most and thus our happiness consists in wealth. Two, another objection. According to a Boethius, uh, Boethius, who was an important early medieval philosopher, he's hugely influential to later medieval philosophers. He was the author of a book called The Consolation of Philosophy. Life is made perfect by being full of good things. Money seems the best way to acquire good things, for as the philosopher Aristotle says, money was invented in order to help us acquire what we want. Objection three. Our highest good and end is something we never stop desiring, and obviously the thing we never stop desiring is money. A covetous man shall not be satisfied with riches, Ecclesiastes 5.9. So happiness consists in wealth. Then we get, on the contrary, as Boethius says, wealth shines in giving rather than in hoarding, for the miser is hateful, whereas the generous man is applauded. Therefore, our happiness does not consist in wealth. Now, I respond that, as the philosopher, again, Aristotle, says, there are two kinds of wealth, natural and artificial. Natural wealth helps us get what we need for our nature, food, shelter, etc. This should remind you a little of Epicurus on natural and necessary desires. Artificial wealth is not to preserve our nature, but was invented by humans. But clearly our happiness cannot consist in natural wealth since natural wealth is only instrumentally good. We only want it because it keeps us alive. So obviously it cannot be our final, final end, the reason we do everything else we, that we do. And neither can our happiness be an artificial wealth, since really the only use of artificial wealth is to purchase things we need. So it too can't be the reason or end for which we do everything else, our very ultimate motivation. Then he goes through and replies to the objections. Reply to objection one. People who don't know any other good than material goods do obey money, but these people are foolish and we shouldn't let foolish people be our teachers about happiness, just like we wouldn't trust people with poor taste to be a good guide to whether something tastes good. Response to objection two. Money can help us acquire goods, yes, but it cannot buy spiritual goods. As Proverbs says, what good is money if you don't have wisdom? Response to objection three. The desire for artificial wealth is infinite because it is the servant of our disordered desires and appetites, which are out of control as the philosopher Aristotle makes clear. However, the reason we keep desiring artificial wealth is because it is insufficient. And the more we possess it, the more we will despise it. Whereas a truly sovereign good, i.e. God, when we desire it and begin to know it and possess it, the more we will love it. Okay, whew. <laughs> this is my love-hate relationship with Aquinas in a nutshell. He goes on like this. Question, meticulous objections. On the contraries, I respond that. Replies to objections for pages and pages and pages. Four large volumes of this. And on the one hand, yes, it is a little bit dry. I was really cutting down in my paraphrasing and made what I just said above shorter. But on the other hand, I love the thoroughness of it. I love that he doesn't just launch into saying his own opinion, but carefully and thoroughly considers opposing viewpoints for every single question. 
I also wanted to walk you through how this works just to help you understand Aquinas, because if you don't know how the system works, it can be totally confusing. You might mistake what he says in the objections as his actual view, when in fact it's better best to first read the question, then hop down to I respond that to figure out Aquinas's own view, and then go back and start from the objections. The final thing I want you to notice is the frequency with which Aquinas appeals to authorities. The philosopher, Aristotle, of course, but also Augustine and Boethius and frequent quotation of scripture. He occasionally also referred to the commentator, meaning a commentator on the philosopher Aristotle. And by this, he was referring to Averroes, a Muslim philosopher who unfortunately we're not going to be covering. We will discuss Avicenna and Maimonides in the next module, however, and Aquinas also engaged with their work at various points in the Summa. Part B, Aquinas's Five Ways. Like Anselm and many other medieval philosophers, Aquinas was interested in giving arguments for the existence of God and defending the rationality of Christianity and belief in God. Again, I'll paraphrase to help you along, but let's look at the place in the Summa where he articulates his five ways or five arguments for the existence of God. You can read a direct translation by clicking through the link provided below in the Canvas lecture notes. So he begins this time with the question, is there a God? And this is from the Primus Pars, the first Summa, question two, article three. Then Aquinas gives two objections to the idea that there's a God. And this is where it's really important to know that he starts with objections. Otherwise, you would think that he doesn't believe in God. So roughly paraphrasing, the objections are, one, if there are two opposing things and one of them is infinite, then it would totally overcome and destroy the thing which is opposite to it. Evil is opposite to God, but if there was a God, God would be infinitely good and would totally overcome and destroy evil. So there must be no God. Objection two. We can explain the world without God, so adding in God as an explanation of the world is just totally unnecessary. We can trace natural things back to natural causes and chosen things back to human will. On the contrary, it is said of the person of God, I am who I am, from Exodus 3, um, verse 14. I answer that the existence of God can be proved in five ways. And then Aquinas launches into a rather long description of those five ways. I am not going to copy and paste all of them here. Um, you can five, find the five arguments in a link that I provide in the lecture notes. I think they're also in your Canvas textbook um, or your, your textbook, which of course you get on Canvas. I'm going to give two of them in full below with commentary, but I do recommend clicking through the link or looking in your textbook to review all five in some detail. So skipping the first way, let's look at the second way. I'm first going to read Aquinas and then I'll unpack. The second way is from the nature of the efficient cause. In the world of sense, we find there is an order of efficient causes. There is no case known, neither is it indeed possible, in which a thing is found to be the efficient cause of itself. For so it would be prior to itself, which is impossible. Now in efficient causes, it is not possible to go on to infinity because in all efficient causes following in order, the first is the cause of the intermediate cause and the intermediate is the cause of the ultimate cause, whereas the intermediate cause be several or only one. Now to take away the cause is to take away the effect. Therefore, if there be no first cause among efficient causes, there will be no ultimate nor any intermediate cause. 
But if inefficient causes, it is possible to go on to infinity, there will be no first efficient cause. Neither will there be an ultimate effect nor any intermediate efficient causes, all of which is plainly false. Therefore, it is necessary to admit a first efficient cause to which everyone gives the name of God. So hopefully the label efficient cause immediately stuck out to you. Do you remember where you've heard that before? Aristotle. It's one of his four types of causation, and it's a type of cause that most closely mimics our normal sense of cause, i.e. I caused the broken glass by throwing a baseball into the window, or I caused the cake to be so delicious because I was the one who baked it, etc. So how does this idea of an efficient cause lead us to the existence of God? Aquinas reasons as follows. Nothing can be the efficient cause of itself because the efficient cause is prior and you can't be prior to yourself. So in the case of you, you can't be your own cause because obviously you weren't around prior to your existence to bring yourself into existence. Then, so what is the first efficient cause of everything? Can we trace efficient causes back and back and back into infinity? No, because if there was an infinity of efficient causes, then there would be no first cause. And if there is no first cause, there is no effect, but obviously there are tons of effects that are going on and they're being causes themselves. So there was a first efficient cause. That first efficient cause is the thing which we call God. One aside before we go on to the next of the ways. You often hear people introduce the following premise into their summaries of Aquinas on God's existence. Everything must have a cause. However, Aquinas was very careful to never say this because he knew that it begged the question, well, what caused God? Aquinas is going to just say that God is unique and being the sort of being that isn't caused. So other people do make this error, but Aquinas doesn't. So please don't attribute it to him. Fifth way. Again, quoting Aquinas, then I'll unpack. The fifth way is taken from the governance of the world. We see that things that lack intelligent, such intelligence, such as natural bodies, act for an end, and this is evident from their acting always or nearly always in the same way so as to obtain the best result. Hence, it is plain that not fortuitously, but designedly, do they achieve their end. Now, whatever lacks intelligence cannot move towards an end unless it be directed by some being endowed with knowledge and intelligence, as the arrow is shot to its mark by the archer. Therefore, some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end, and this being we call God. Here, I would summarize Aquinas' reasoning as follows. Things that lack intelligence act for an end, i.e. they act in a way that is best for them. So, for example, plants grow towards the sun, and this is what's good for them, but they do this in spite of lacking intelligence. Lacking intelligence themselves these things must be directed by something else that does have knowledge and intelligence. So for example, an arrow hits the target not from its own knowledge, but because it is directed by the archer. So there must be some designer that has designed the world so that things go towards what is best for them. The designer of the universe is what we call God. The fifth way is a version of what's known as an argument from design. Arguments for God's existence from design are actually pretty popular, and although you probably haven't heard Aquinas' specific argument above, I bet you've heard some version of the argument from design. 
in one famous example, and there's a link to more info on Canvas, a man wrote that staring at his young daughter's ear and being in awe of its intricacy led him to the conclusion that she could not have been the product of mere chance, but must have been designed, i.e. by God. So after giving his five arguments for God's existence, all of which are part of his I respond that, Aquinas finally circles back to the objections. Very briefly, his response to objection one, Augustine says that God would not allow evil to exist if he were not powerful enough to draw good from it. So it is actually part of God's goodness that evils are permitted to exist. Response to objection two, actually the origin of natural causes is God. And so too God is the first cause of human reason and will. C, natural law theory. Overall, Aquinas' ethics is very Aristotelian in nature, but Aquinas of course layers Christian doctrine on top of Aristotle's ethical framework. So for instance, Aristotle says that the final end for which we act is happiness. Aquinas concurred, but he added to this that true happiness lies in God. Furthermore, Aristotle, as you hopefully remember, says that we must have virtue to live a life of happiness or eudaimonia because virtue perfects our rational nature. Aquinas agreed, but added to the list of virtues one needs specifically spiritual virtues like faith, hope, and love. However, Aquinas is probably better known for developing what's known as natural law theory. This is not inconsistent with his broadly Aristotelian outlook, but it is a little different in emphasis. So I'm gonna set aside his continuity with Aristotle and turn to explaining what's unique about natural law theory. In order to understand natural law theory, let's first consider a theory that's arguably its competitor, divine command theory. Divine command theory says that an action is morally right just because God commands it. Imagine a little kid asking their parent, why do I have to do such and such? And the parent snapping back, because I said so. In this context, the parent is saying that the reason it's right for the child to go to bed or pick up their dishes, etc., is simply because the parent said so. The action is right just because the parent said so. Or we could even say that the action is made right or becomes right once it is commanded. This is actually a pretty common ethical outlook among theists. The reason it's right to do some things and wrong to do other things is just because God commanded the first group of things and forbade the second group of things. The advantage of this theory is that it explains why God's commands are so important to theists and accounts for God's perfection, making morality something that comes from God. However, there are also some pretty major problems with divine command theory, at least as I've explained it here. For one thing, it seems that there are many things that are just abhorrent, for instance, child abuse. But divine command theory says that if God commands you to abuse a child, it would be right for you to abuse a child. And that seems to be a serious problem. If divine command theory is telling us that it would be right for us to abuse children so long as God commanded it, divine command theory can't be correct. Aquinas had another concern with divine command theory. As a Christian, he of course held that people needed to follow the laws and commands of God. But Aquinas worried about people who had never heard of Christianity. How were they supposed to know what to do? And furthermore, how could it be fair to punish those people for failing to follow God's commands? That's like me giving you a zero on an assignment that I hid from you and you didn't even know existed. Totally unfair. 
So Aquinas wanted to offer a different moral theory, one that still gave God an important role in ethics and allowed God in some sense to create or ground ethics, but one that would allow people who never even heard of Christianity to know how they ought to act. Consider an analogy. Cars need regular oil changes, but why? Does my car, for instance, need an oil change because Toyota says it does? Or does it need regular oil changes because the car requires oil changes to function? Well, clearly the latter. Aquinas' natural law theory takes the same approach regarding ethics. Why is it wrong to abuse a child? Not just because God said so, but because God made the world a certain way and God created children such that they are harmed by abuse and on the other hand, flourish when they're loved and cared for. And again, you can see the influence of Aristotle. In other words, natural law theory grounds ethical principles in the way God created the world rather than what God commands. And even people who've never heard of Christianity can then use their divinely given reason to figure out how they're supposed to act by considering the nature God has given human beings and what promotes the flourishing of human nature. Sidebar. This is why, for example, Catholic teaching continues to forbid birth control. Catholic moral teaching continues to be deeply influenced by the natural law theory. And so when it comes to sexual ethics, the question is, for what purpose did God give us sexuality? For the Catholic tradition, the answer is procreation, children, family. So therefore, anything that hinders or interferes with this purpose or function of sexuality is wrong. And forgive me, obviously I'm simplifying. However, we can also debate what the nature or purpose of something is. For example, although this is a bit unusual in that most people who have permissive sexual ethics totally reject natural law type thinking altogether, you could still begin with the question, for what purpose did God give us sexuality and answer pleasure or intimacy and connection or something else. And then obviously this would lead to a different set of conclusions about what's permissible, sexually speaking. 